Support for Wavemakers comes from listeners like you and the Tampa Bay Times. The Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper is available around the Tampa Bay area and online at tampabay.com. Thanks to the Tampa Bay Times for their support. Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Tom and Janet, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And running the board today is political junkie John Dunn. Answering the phones is DJ Spaceship. If you want to join our conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663. DJ Spaceship will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's Wavemaker has been making waves in Florida for almost 30 years uh, since he moved here from his native North Carolina. Uh, William March uh, worked for years uh, as an editor and reporter at the Tampa Tribune uh, before uh, joining the Tampa Bay Times as a political columnist. And he's here today to talk about uh, the upcoming elections for 2024. We'll continue the conversation that Sean Canan began about the Florida legislature But, Wendy, first let's start with the results of last night's Iowa caucuses in which Donald Trump got, I think, 51 percent. That's roughly about that of the vote. And Ron DeSantis placed second. And Nikki Freed is now third. Now Vivek Ramaswamy, if that's how you pronounce his name, (laughs) has finally suspended his campaign. Uh, But, uh, Wendy, what does this mean uh, for Ron DeSantis' prospects to be president? Well, hey, guys. First of all, glad to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, The the outcome in Iowa looks just good enough to give DeSantis grounds to claim justification for going forward. Um, It it does not seem to really change the overall trajectory of his campaign, which— Going back to when he was expected to be the chief competitor to Trump and a close competitor, the overall trajectory has been down, whereas Haley's has been up somewhat. Now, DeSantis did defy at least one poll by narrowly edging her out for second place, but I'm not sure that's enough to change the overall trajectory. And you're talking about in New Hampshire? Well, uh, no, there was a Des Moines Register poll that suggested she would would run second to Trump in Iowa. But DeSantis' real problem is the next few states are not looking good for him. He's been polling in single digits in New Hampshire. The Republicans in that state are more libertarian, often more moderate as compared to the evangelical influence in Iowa. Following that, you have South Carolina, where she formerly was governor and where Trump is polling very well. And you also have the Nevada caucuses. And the rules in that caucus, in the Republican Nevada caucus, could be problematic for DeSantis's super PAC, never back down. So it's he's got a tough road ahead, uh, and he hasn't really swung the race with this outcome. So what does that mean for him back in Florida? What does that mean for him for he's in the middle of a legislative session, his position in the presidential race? Well, it will unquestionably diminish his influence some, but it's not really clear to me how much. He's got three more legislative sessions to go after this one or two more after this one. And 
legislators know that he's going to be holding that veto pen for the next two years after this session. You're assuming he's not going to be president. Is that what you're saying? I think that I think (laughs) I am, Janet. Um, Somebody might call me on that, but (laughs) that's my estimation right at the moment. Uh, Because he's been very powerful in Tallahassee. Last year, he had a a very dominant session, right? Extremely powerful in Tallahassee. And a large part of that was he was not only the governor, newly elected and a landslide, but also looking like he was a serious contender for the presidency. Now, that is a figure that your average legislator is going to have a tendency to bow and scrape to. That slightly declined if his presidential campaign goes nowhere. Uh, plus, he's going to be absent for most of this session. Uh, in addition to that, he has less motivation to push some of the culture war issues that he pushed in 2023. A lot of those culture war issues were at least part of the motivation behind them, had to be to benefit his campaign for the presidency. He even announced, you know, he's even said publicly that that passing some of those culture war issues has enabled him to go on the campaign trail and say he's kept promises. So there's less motivation now for him to push those kinds of issues. Um, Back to this uh, idea that we're assuming that Ron DeSantis will not be president. Um, uh, We've got an email from Jerome who says, Ron's victory speech sounds like he might be leaning towards Trump being disqualified for running again. So what do you guys think about that? Tom? I did not notice. I didn't Wendy? listen to his speech, so I'm not sure what... Or is that a possible... I mean, is I mean that, I, what I, does it mean for DeSantis if Trump is disqualified? So What, what do you think? Do you think the odds... Are there any odds that he's going to... The Supreme Court is going to say, no, he's not qualified to be on the ballot? I, that seems... Remote. It's really hard for me to imagine that happening. Okay. Um, now, he could be convicted of the of, of, of one of the crimes he's been charged with, so that, that could have an impact on the... And, and then there's a question of how those convictions affect his... His presidential race, and I'm, I'm not a legal expert on those things. Um, the uh, as to whether DeSantis wants to see that happen, right? Possibly he does in his secret heart of hearts, but he's certainly not going to come out and say outright that he that he thinks Trump ought to be disqualified. But I mean, in Florida, you can't vote if you're a convicted felon, right? So, is it possible he could be convicted of a felony before the election? He couldn't even vote for himself. I suppose that is possible. You could run for office even though you can't vote. I, my guess is the Florida cabinet would restore his civil rights. Pretty qu- Well, he has to pay his fines and fees. He would have to pay his fines and fees and forfeitures, yes. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, barring something like that happening, DeSantis is going to be wielding the veto pen, as you said, for another three sessions. Right. So, therefore, he's still in pretty well positioned to get what he wants through this year. Curiously, last week uh, when the session began and he gave the usual speech uh, to start things up, he didn't really have a whole lot of uh, proposals, mm-hmm. uh, did he? He seemed like he was really, he, and he left immediately to go back to Iowa. So. He, had, he had virtually none. Yeah. The, the thrust of his message was keep doing what you're doing. Um, the, uh, and He's obviously distracted. I mean, I've heard that as very little has come out of that office in terms of priorities for the session. Well, also you had uh, agency heads and legislators uh, in uh, Iowa the last couple of days. So, I, Well, I, the most powerful people in the legislature, the House Speaker Paul Renner, was in Iowa. Will they go to New Hampshire? What are they, what are they going to do? <laughs> is, 
is Tallahassee going to be depopulated during the I session? hope so. <laughs> a lot of people they should would all say. go. Well, a there's a people. joke that this is the most dangerous. Uh, this is the most well, dangerous the time Republicans. of the Republicans. All the Republicans year. should go, and the Democrats should just stay and run the committees. That'll work. I think the phrase is "No man's life, liberty, <laughs> or property are safe while the legislature is in session." <laughs> so, uh, without. DeSantis uh, leading the way there. Uh, what are we going to be looking at this session? Well, you, you... Let's start with the budget. Let's talk about the budget in Tallahassee. Can we start with that? Yes, let's that, do that. A big fat budget. There's a lot of money in the legislature. Um, much of it, um, Wendy, I think you've pointed out, came, came from pandemic money. So there's a lot of money up there to do a lot with. Yes. The, um, it's it's a, an increase of roughly a third from the last budget of of DeSantis's predecessor, Rick Scott. But an awful lot of that increase, as you noted, has come from, from pandemic aid, um, some $4 trillion nationally in, in, in pandemic aid. Uh, the, uh, nonetheless, it's going to cut state jobs and, and cut some arts and culture programs. There's no money in it for one of the state's most crucial needs, which is... Uh, major renovations in our prison system, mm -hmm. uh, renovations that are expected to cost uh, hundreds of millions of dollars over the next decade or so, according to a study commissioned by the state. Well, they're, under, they're so understaffed that uh, the DeSantis has, has called on the Florida National Guard to help out. Yes, and he just and renewed that And he's still cutting commitment. Department of Correction yes. officers anyway. Probably Probably cutting just vacant positions, but, but cutting those yeah. positions, yes. Yeah, but not staffing up. What else is in, in that budget There's we should be paying attention to? Well, uh, some small things that are significant to DeSantis's culture wars and his, his public proclamations. His, uh, five million bucks to continue his program of flying migrants um, from the border to other states. And remember reminding people those are not people from Florida, right? They're people from other states. Right. A um, million uh, dollars to sue over FSU being left out of the playoffs, the college football playoffs. Uh, Wait, say that again. <laughs> there's a million dollars in DeSantis' <laughs> budget proposal to pay for a lawsuit over Florida State University being left out of the playoffs. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, the uh, $45 million to pay for teachers... 3000 apiece to undergo civics training in a program that was crafted by some conservative organizations, a couple of million for DeSantis's election police force, things like that. To more on top of what he already got for the election police force, which has basically led to very few uh, uh, cases of, of uh, election fraud. Uh, yes. Wow. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, and we're talking to um, political reporter um, William March about uh, the legislative session uh, coming up in Tallahassee. If you have any questions, um, give us a call at 813-239-9663, and DJ Spaceship will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813 433 0885. So um, DeSantis, we're, we're not sensing he has a lot of legislative priorities, but we can tell what his, some of his priorities are from his budget. 
What about in the legislature? What's what are um, the top priorities for um, Pasadomo, the Speaker of the House, and the the Senate? Uh, uh, and I'm sorry, Pasadomo's in the Senate and Renner in the House. Wendy, can you give us any insight into that? Sure. As you mentioned, Kathleen Pasadomo is Senate President, Paul Renner is House Speaker, and it's typical for the the legislative leaders who are extremely powerful people in the legislature. It's typical for them to to start with their own major priorities, start the session that they try to push through. And in Pasadena's case, it's, it's health care, uh, some reforms uh, in health care, which she believes will help increase access. Now, mostly what, these, what her proposals do uh, is they don't expand health insurance coverage. What they do is they increase opportunities uh, for training, residencies for doctors and others in order to solve what's expected to be what a current and expected to worsen shortage of healthcare professionals in Florida. And that that is a significant problem. Um, in Paul Renner's case, the House Speaker, one of his top priorities is protecting children from negative influences of social media. And he's got some pretty strong proposals that he wants to push through, including preventing children under 16 from independently opening their own social media accounts. Uh, Hmm. How would they enforce that? I'm not sure. They might require the websites themselves to enforce it. They want to require age verification by websites. Uh, And my guess is that you will see... Uh, some pretty intense lobbying on this from those social media websites. Yeah, those tech companies are not going to be liking this too much at all. I don't think they'll sit back. Is that something that is happening anywhere else? Where did that come from? Is this just, Renner just thought that up on his own? Or is that something that's happening in other places? I think it's been proposed by conservative organizations around the country that that proposed model legislation, right. but I'm not aware of a state that's actually put it into effect. Well, you mentioned how powerful the uh, speaker and the president are in the legislature, uh, and it really has become a top-down process. I mean, 20 years ago, you used to have some uh, chairs who, you know, wielded some power that could prevent things from happening, but they pretty much drive the train now. And a good example, I think, last week was when Renner immediately announced that a very controversial bill that would have eliminated no-excuse mail-in voting was not happening. Right. Um, Can you explain that? Because this is an issue that has been, you know, that Trump has been trying to use, trying to uh, claim that there's a fraud in mail-in voting. But Republicans have used mail-in voting in Florida for, what, 20 years to their success. Oh, yes, absolutely. They, uh, as to the power of the, the legislative leaders, committee chairs determine what bills get heard. If they don't get heard in committee, they cannot go vo- be voted on on the floor. And the committee chairs, in turn, serve at the pleasure of the House Speaker and the Senate President. So, in effect, the Speaker and the President have authoritarian control, if they choose to exercise it, over any bill that's filed. They can prevent any bill from passing. Now... As you mentioned, um, more than a decade ago, I can't cite the exact date, Florida, Florida, for the first time, began allowing no-excuses absentee mail-in voting. It was immediately adopted by the Republican Party, and it became a major part of the Republican success 
through the late 90s and, and early 2000s. And when you say no excuse, you mean you don't have to give a reason you for... You don't have just, to be sick. because you, you don't feel like it. You don't, right. All you too busy, do, whatever. Yeah. All you got to do is ask for an absentee ballot and you get one and you can vote it. The, now, the Republicans have loved this process. And like I said, it's been a large part of their success. But suddenly, in the last election, it was a large part of the claims as best I know, totally unfounded claims of election fraud in the 2020 election. By Trump. These are Trump, By Trump allegations. And, backers. Yeah. and that has caused even Republicans who love mail-in voting, it's caused some Republican elements, fringe elements, Trump backers to question Florida's use of mail-in voting. So one legislator files a bill to go back to the former system where you had to have an excuse uh, for mail-in voting, and Renner says, no way, Jose. And that's that. That's that. Uh, he can forget it. That means his bill will not come up in committee. Uh, if it does, the chairman of that committee will find himself out of his chair and replaced by somebody else. And it's, since it doesn't come up in committee, it can't go to the floor. But short of that extreme measure, are there other ways that the legislature is trying to change the way we vote? Well, they're, they're asking for, I believe, uh, tougher list maintenance efforts on the part of local supervisors. And what that is is removing, um, removing voters who haven't voted, putting them on inactive lists. Um, they are, um, uh, they're also... Um, they're taking a couple of other steps. One was making, requiring that if you want an absentee ballot, you have to apply for it for every election. Mm -hmm. Previously, if you applied for an absentee ballot, you would get it for at least two elections. Now the supervisors are having to send notices to all the people who applied for absentee ballots that you no longer are eligible for one until you apply again. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this will cut back probably on those who are able to vote by mail. Democrats Doesn't have, that cut both ways, Democrats, Republicans? They, they both have to apply for it. Uh, uh, yeah, they, any voter, not just yeah. Democrats or Republicans. The, the problem with it is that Democrats say that Democrats have now begun to use mail-in voting at least as much as Republicans. Because previously they preferred early voting. They preferred early voting. But... Mail-in voting is another alternative to having to go to the polls on a weekday, mm -hmm. which working people, black people, minorities, Democrats, have a harder time doing. So this, Democrats contend, is a voter suppression effort by Republicans. But because Renner has said no, that also suggests that he realizes that there's some value for Republicans to mail-in voting. Absolutely. Republicans still love it, too. Both parties love it. The, the interesting thing about mail-in voting is what it allows the parties to do is it allows them to see who has voted and who hasn't. And mm -hmm. there's a major industry now called chasing absentees. And what you do is you keep track. You develop a list of friendly voters. You then keep track of which of those have requested mail-in ballots, and you keep track of which of those have sent those ballots in, and if they haven't, you call them up. Have you sent in your ballot? Are you going to go vote? 
And if you have a good, strong organization with volunteers and money for phone banking, you can chase those absentees and move your voters to the polls, or rather not to the polls. Same thing with door knocking. If anybody who's listening has, any, has done any canvassing the last few years, that's the way it's done. You get a list of voters who have not voted by mail. Right. Um, because you don't want to waste your time knocking on doors of people who have already voted. Um, let's move on to talk about some of the other things that's hap- that are happening in Tallahassee. There's a lot going on with um, the LGBTQ community. Um, there's a lot of it is about the uh, um, uh, preferred pronouns. So there's something that's prohibiting government tra- contractors from being required to use um, employees' preferred pronouns. So that's coming up a couple times. Um, it, they also are mandating that any health insurance policies or there's a bill issued after July 1st allow transgender conversion therapy, um, which is therapy that seeks to change a person's gender identity. I thought that was gone a long time ago. So they want to bring that back. So DeSantis may not be focused too much on Tallahassee, but the Tallahassee is focused on a lot of these performative anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ. There are, there are definitely a number of of culture war issues in here that that go farther than the ones passed in 2023. Um, There's a question in my mind as to how much traction these bills are going to get. And that the question is, how eager are the Republicans to go further than they went in 2023 in angering pro-choice women, for example, with, with more abortion restrictions? angering gay voters or their advocates with more attacks on on transgenderism. Now, the bill you mentioned uh, would prevent transgender people from... It, it would require that driver's licenses and state IDs use the gender assigned on your birth certificate, mm-hmm. preventing trans, transgender people from having their preferred gender expressed on their, their state documents, their state IDs. And it would also require that if insurance policies cover transgender conversion therapy, they also cover the reverse, detransitioning therapy. Is there such a thing? I assume there must be. Um, The interesting thing, though, as I said, my, my question is how much enthusiasm are Republicans going to have for doing this? And that bill... Uh, there are actually two versions of it, but they're both in the House. There is no Senate companion to that bill yet. Um, is that an indication that the bill was not doesn't have a lot of uh, power it, behind it? Or? It can be. As you know, in order to pass, a bill must pass both houses, the Senate and the House, in identical form. And one way to expedite that is if you file a bill in the House, then you go see if you can find a friendly senator to sponsor an identical bill over there. This bill does not have a Senate companion. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF. Um, our guest today is uh, political reporter Wendy uh, William March, and we're talking about the shenanigans in Tallahassee right now. And we'll, we'll be right back after this. 
Yes, it's a new year and a new season for the monthly Living Mirror Playback Theater shows in the WMNF Live Music Studio. This month, we're exploring the subject of homelessness and hunger. And on Friday, January 26th at 7 p.m., Living Mirror will feature improv enactments of stories from that community and activists working to improve lives. It'll be a compelling evening of community sharing and theater, and these shows are free. So please reserve your seat online at wmnf.org slash events. Interestingly, uh, Wendy, we're, we're back with uh, William March, known to his friends as Wendy. So if I call him Wendy, that's why. Which I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, probably f- for homeowners, at least in Florida, the biggest issue for them right now is the rising cost of property insurance. So do you see any hope uh, that the legislature is going to do anything about that? They had, what, they... Took, talked about it last year during the regular session. I think they had two special sessions to try to deal with it. Haven't fixed the problem. Is there any talk about doing something more? Well, yes. DeSantis has made a proposal, but it's not a major change. What he's proposed doing is cutting taxes or having tax holidays on premiums for flood insurance and on certain other premiums, fees, connected with property insurance. Now, he he announced this saying that it would make a difference of, I think he said, 6% total decrease in the cost of property insurance in the state. Uh, a group of state economists has since said it's not that much. I think they said 2%. It's about, 400 mil- it's about a $400 million tax cut. Other than that... Um, there are a number of proposals by Democrats that almost certainly will go nowhere because they're by Democrats. <laughs> um, and the Republicans have supermajority control. And the, yes, and the Republicans control both houses by two-thirds or more. There, there is one proposal, um, and this is by a Republican, uh, that would do a really radical revamp of the property insurance in Florida, making the state... Uh, possibly through its citizens' insurance, the only single provider of windstorm hurricane insurance in Florida. In other words, basically a public takeover of windstorm hurricane insurance, leaving... Socialized property insurance, Wendy? Essentially, yes, that's what it is. Um, And it's been suggested before by by smart people. Um, uh, It would still leave... Uh, your other homeowner's insurance, fire, liability, whatever, uh, to the private market. Uh, Again, the odds of this passage are somewhere between zero and nada. (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, What else? Let's move on. uh, Well, well, how about uh, there are some other performative, what what you might call performative legislation. In other words, when Rhonda says, says, keep doing what you're doing, he's asking them to continue to pass legislation that helps his bid for president, performs for the right-wing base of the Republican Party, um, such as Confederate monuments. Uh, there is a bill or and a companion, and there's a bill in the House and a bill in the Senate that uh, is basically aimed at trying to prevent local governments from removing uh, monuments to 
white supremacy and, you know, the insurrection uh, from public property. Um, what about this, Wendy? What's driving this and what are the chances of it getting passed? Well, I believe I, the, the sponsor of it is from Duvall or one of the sponsors. And um, I believe it probably has something to do with the mayor of Jacksonville, Donna Deegan, wanting to remove a monument to Confederate women. Um, but to me, it's which a, was removed. She didn't just want to. Right, she right. removed it, um, and and some other some other removals, I think. But anyway, it's a surprising bill to me. But in one way, it's not because it's just another of many, many, many steps taken by the legislature over the last several years to preempt, take over the powers of local government. And it basically forbids local government from removing such monuments unless they have permission from the owner or sponsor or whatever of the monument and uh, penalizes individual members of city councils or county commissioners if they, if they take steps to do that. Interestingly, there is some language in the bill that suggests it's retroactive. Uh, the House version of the bill says retroactive to 2017. The Senate version says retroactive to 2020. And that could conceivably cover Hillsborough County's removal of its monument to Confederate soldiers that sat in front of the courthouse for years. But I'm not clear exactly how that retroactivity would work and it might depend on who was considered the owner of that monument. Well, and what the bill says is that you need to move the monument back. If you moved a monument, um, then you need to move it back. And it looks like that could be retroactive to 2017 or 2020, although there's some references to the, the monument being moved due to construction or, and all those questions like you mentioned, Wendy, about the owner. But nonetheless, whether or not it applies to our specific, a specific example like in Hillsborough County, uh, certainly there is movement there to try to get uh, – opening the question of whether or not monuments should be returned to where they were removed. Because there are other the Confederate monuments around the state uh, that could be removed potentially. I don't know how many well, that have are. been removed. And, and have been removed, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think it's possible that that retroactivity language may be aimed at specific incidents like the, the ones in one. Jacksonville. Right. Another part of the bill refers to the statue that, that used to represent, used to be one of two statues Florida had in the statuary hall in the Capitol. Uh, oh, okay. A conf it, it specifies what's to be done with that statue, uh, a Confederate general who did not, wasn't even from Florida and barely lived here, lived here only very briefly, and was also not considered much great shakes as a general, frankly. Uh, but the language in the bill suggests to me that it's aimed at specific events, specific incidents or monuments. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF, and our guest today is William March, a political reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. And right now we're um, talking about um, a bill in the legislature that um, would could potentially, possibly, um, lead to the um, uh, putting back Confederate monuments that have been removed over the past um, three to six years. If you have any want to comment on that or have thoughts about that, you can call us or anything else, 813-239-9663, or you can email us at dj at wmnf.org. 
Um, what about, um, Wendy, what's going on with um, the offer transportation money? We've been hearing about that, that there's $579 million that was collected from that one cent transportation sales tax in Hillsborough County um, that has been, um, un- we've been unable to spend it. So what's happening with that? Well, there's a major change in Governor DeSantis's position on that. Last year, the legislature couldn't come to an agreement on what to do with the money. I believe it was the Senate that wanted it to be spent on transportation projects in Hillsborough, which is what the All for Transportation advocates have strongly suggested and, and say is the only fair thing to do with the money. But the House, I believe, if I'm not confused on which chamber did what, the House proposed instead um, a tax break on other taxes that would persist until that 590 or however much million was, in effect, returned to taxpayers. Didn't they also want to repay the lawyers who sued over this? Yeah, there's there's a little wrinkle in there um, that um, the... uh, the House version included setting aside about $7 million bucks to pay some lawyers who filed a lawsuit. It wasn't the lawsuit that resulted in the, the tax being invalidated, but they did file a lawsuit, and they want $7 million bucks in return. Anyway, uh, DeSantis now, having previously backed the idea of refunding the money through a break in other taxes now goes along with the idea that it should be spent on transportation projects in Hillsborough. And that, to me, is a strong indication that the all-for-transportation advocates will get what they want and that we will see that money spent here in the county. Although, although who's deciding how to spend it? Would it go to FDOT or would it go to actual to the county or the, the cities? That I'm not clear on. The county commissioners certainly would have some say. The Department of Transportation would also, I assume. Yeah. And there's uh, another a bill that's out there, very controversial, uh, that would undo uh, some of the uh, legislation that was passed in the wake of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas massacre which they lowered the or the, they lowered the a they raised the age in which you could buy a gun from 18 to 21 and this would return that to 18 do you think that that bill has some juice it probably does at the time that they passed this in the wake of the the Marjorie Stone and Douglas shootings gun rights advocates were very angry about it um, but the legislature clearly felt compelled by a wave of of popular anger to do something, and this was the it biggest. It occurred during the legislature. During the legislature, and students session. were actually in the audience watching them. Students who had survived that massacre. So timing is important in politics. Good point. So they were they felt compelled to do something. Now they're going back and undoing it. Well, do you, is there is this being pushed by the legislative leadership, or is this just? Another crazy idea from... That I'm not clear on. I haven't researched that bill to see whether it's got versions in both houses. I don't believe it's gone to any committee yet. The first thing you do when you're tracking a bill in the legislature is you call up the website for that bill on the, on the legislature's uh, uh, internet page and you see whether it's gone through any committees. Uh, because again, there's only 60 days in the session 
In order to become law, a bill has to go through its committees, be approved by all of the committees it's referred to, and then adopted by both houses. I'm not sure where that bill stands in that process. Well, speaking of that, where does this bill stand in the process? There's a, a bill forbidding um, cashless businesses. And bipartisan bill. Yeah, that's got support from both parties. My guess is that will pass in some form. Now, that you may see some lobbying on that. There are, there are uh, businesses that object to it. I think the, uh, what used to be called the National Federation of Independent Businesses, which is just, it's basically a trade association for small businesses. Mm-hmm. I think they oppose it. I think they want their members to have the option of going cashless. That's really interesting that Republicans would be supporting a, a bill like that that kind of punishes uh, businesses because they're so, you know, small business oriented and all that. Well, I don't know. I suppose it's a freedom thing. Well, I mean, I could see uh, there are a lot of people who don't have credit cards, much less bank accounts. I mean, there's probably a fourth of Hillsborough County's population that doesn't have it. I worked at the clerk's office for years. I was always surprised how many people were paying tickets and all sorts of things with cash. Why? Because they don't have a bank account. Interesting. So, but this un- involves private businesses, not government. So, you know, government, of course, should be required to take, you know, cash. It's the um, only way poor people can pay their bills. We've got an email from Gary Gibbons I want to read. He says... Um, hi, Gary. Hi, Gary. He says, it was an interesting choice of words for the governor who bet it all in Iowa and finished a distant second. In fact, if you add his total caucus supporters and Nikki Haley's together, they don't equal Trump's margin of victory. But the use of the term punched our ticket out of Iowa was a strange choice of words. I did hear him say that. The Urban Dictionary describes punch your ticket as usually it means to have someone killed or otherwise taken out of commission. (laughs) It's also unusual today to even have paper tickets that could be punched. So it's just another example of how disconnected DeSantis is with everyone and everything, but it is very descriptive of his campaign, which is clearly out of commission or dead. Um, We had another um, email from somebody who just said, you know, DeSantis' biggest problem is his personality. Um, so back to the DeSantis, where DeSantis stands. And that was, that's funny. Gary Gibbons, he did, I I don't, I hope he's not um, punching anybody's ticket. Now, another bill that's out there, uh, would, uh, make all school board elections partisan. And I don't know how many of, uh, of Florida's 67 school boards are partisan versus nonpartisan, uh, Hillsborough County and Pinellas County, I believe Pasco. Most most of the Tampa Bay area is they're nonpartisan. I assume this came out of the idea that you know schools should be nonpartisan. Politics should not enter the uh, decisions that we make regarding the education of our children. So what's driving this, Wendy? Well, if there is a county that has partisan school board elections, there may be. I'm not aware of it, but as you said, the Tampa Bay area they're all nonpartisan. Uh, there is likely to be support for that from both sides because. Partisan forces, the the parties themselves, party activists on both sides like this idea because they want to be able to identify their people on the ballot. And their, their argument is that if you don't know much about a candidate, then whether they choose to be a D or an R at least gives you some modicum of information about them. And there has been an increased focus on school board elections by the DeSantis uh, branch of the Republican Party, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. And this is, this is a new and, and really significant 
almost drastic development. School board races for decades, as you said, have been nonpartisan and also very quiet affairs. Um, people, the candidates tended to be teachers or school administrators or retired principals or PTA president moms. But now the, the attacks on so-called woke ideology in public schools by the right-wing Republicans have resulted in school board races suddenly becoming major partisan imbroglios and the Pinellas school board race coming up in this year in 2024 is going to be a major test of that movement. There are, there are three seats up, uh, two with Democratic incumbents uh, and one open seat and... Moms for Liberty advocates, those are the, the Republican, the conservatives who are trying to take over school boards, have got candidates running in all three. If they win any two of those three, then they will have that, those forces, those conservative forces, right-wing forces, will have a majority on the Pinellas school board. Ron DeSantis took the highly unusual step uh, prior to the, the 2022 election of basically publishing a list of school board members statewide, including, uh, I think, a total of five in Pinellas and Hillsborough uh, that he wanted to see removed, um, unelected from the school boards. So and why the interest in school boards? Well, for one thing, it's because of the, the furor over alleged left-wing ideology in school systems, but there's more to it than that. A school board member who's been elected and served a couple of terms has kind of an edge running for county commissioner or city council. A county commissioner or a city council member has kind of an edge running for the state legislature. State legislator has an edge running for a statewide office, Congress, senator, even governor. Mm -hmm. It's one of the low... It's one of way the lower to develop rungs. your bench, right. It's a good way to develop your bench. It's Without being a water management district or the mosquito <laughs> control board. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, Pat Frank started her political career on the school board and worked her way, as you mentioned, legislature, county commission. Did Betty Castor? Um, no, I think so Betty Castor went straight to the county commission. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. But school boards, school boards are funnels into higher levels of political activity. But I think the same thing is happening in Hillsborough as well. There's some Moms for Liberty candidates. Yes, there are a couple of the people, uh, a couple of the school board members that DeSantis named that he wanted to see unseated were Hillsborough school board members. Both of them are running. One of them was at a recent Tampa Tiger Bay Club meeting I was at, and she questioned the school superintendent, why are you allowing pornographic books to continue uh, violating the state law uh, uh, and to be on our shelves in schools. And he's like, no, we, we're not doing that. But that gives you an idea of where they're coming from. Well, uh, the, the Moms for Liberty have, have um, pretty broadly defined what they consider pornography and the laws on what's, what's outlawed, the new laws that have been passed, are so vague that librarians, teachers, and principals are really totally at sea when it comes to trying to... I think it was Escambia County where they recently put dictionaries, yeah. uh, the Merriam-Webster yes. Dictionary and encyclopedias on, on a potential list of banned books. I believe they have since been restored. Um, uh, yes, Sean Canan's show uh, talked a little bit about that. Um, 
they're banning all sorts of books. So Bill O'Reilly's book got banned in Escambia. So apparently that's a line you can't cross within the Republican Party. You can't <laughs> ban a Bill O'Reilly book. Um, we're in the last 10 minutes of our show with, um, uh, with Wavemakers, with Janet and Tom, and our guest is William March, political reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, if you want to send us an email, you can at dj dj at wmnf.org, or you can call us at 813-239-9663. David, Mr. White Pepper Bryant, sent us an email, um, and he says, I was disappointed that Mary Alice Smith had to drop out of her county commission campaign due to her husband's health issues. I worry that the Hillsborough County Commission will get even more conservative as more of these Trumpster divers and DeSantis dingbats move to Florida. We need more progressive voices like Pat Kemp and Mary Alice Smith. What does Mr. March think about this? Mr. March, what do you think? Well, a lot of Democrats were severely disappointed with, with Mary Alice's situation. Her, her husband has a, a severe lung disease, she announced, and she's, she's, uh, it's re- she's required to stay home and, and help take care of him. Uh, running a county commission campaign became completely impossible for her. Um, and I would say she would have been the front runner in that race. Well, Democrats were assuming, counting on and assuming that she would hold the only countywide county commission seat that's up on the 24 ballot, which is the seat that Pat Kemp, Democrat Pat Kemp, is leaving for term limits. Since Mariella dropped out, Sean Shaw, a highly prominent Democrat, former uh, former state house member, unsuccessful candidate for attorney general, has announced that he will run for the seat. Uh, at least two prominent Republicans are running, uh, one Rico Smith and one who filed after Mariella's announcement. Um, uh, she is Christine Miller, the president of the Plant City or CEO of the Plant City Chamber of Commerce. The um, Sean Shaw is likely, is, is clearly has the best known name in the race so far. Uh, whether he will be as whether Democrats can rely on him as much as they relied on Mariella uh, to hold that seat is open to question. All right. Um, we've got an email from uh, Jane Gibbons who says, great show today. Thanks for having um, William on. He's a wealth of information and knowledge. So love letter to um, William March. Thank you, Jane. Um, and then speaking of love letters, someone wants to know, are moms for three-way action getting behind DeSantis? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist reading that. Um <laughs> And um, looks like we got a caller on the line. Let's see. There? Um, no, we're not. So what other races are you watching, Wendy? Um, what are going to be the most significant local races in 2024? Well, we mentioned the Pinellas School Board. That's a big one. Um, I'm and- not sure I've ever heard it said in an election year that a school board election is the biggest that is really says something. That is different, and that speaks yeah. to the question you raised. Yep. What's going on here? Right. Why is this happening? Um, the, um, uh, I, I really think the big question for 2024 in the Tampa Bay area uh, is whether the red wave will repeat. Now, this red wave hit Hillsborough very hard. Um, in, in 2022. In 2022. Prior to that, in the 18 and 20 elections, Democrats had cleaned house. They took a majority on the county board for the county board of commissioners the first time in years in, in 18. Then they expanded it in 20. They swept all the countywide constitutional offices except sheriff. Um, and then in 2022, uh, they got creamed. 
there now was this a, has led some people to think that Hill, Hillsborough is no longer a Democratic county and that a Democrat can't get elected countywide. What's your take on it that? It has indeed. Prior to 2022, though, Republicans were bemoaning that they couldn't run a countywide race. As to what's going to happen in 24, I don't have solid information. A large part of the problem in 22 was a pathetic Democratic turnout, like 52% composed to, compared to 65 in the previous non-presidential year and I think high 70s in the previous presidential year. Okay, so 2024 will be a presidential year. Sean Shaw, who, as I said, is jumping into the county commissioner race replacing Mary Ellis Smith, says, I wouldn't be running if it was 2022. He says, in a presidential year, we'll solve our turnout problems. Uh, in and addition, Democrats still uh, you, are the majority. Do you think he's accurate? Okay. There's still a majority in Hillsborough County as far as registered voters. Well, right? just barely. Just barely. The, um, they, their, their lead in registration has collapsed from almost 75,000 in the 2020 election to less than 15,000 today. Now, a lot of that is what we talked about earlier, cleaning voter rolls of voters who aren't active and don't vote anyway. But a lot of it is also new Republicans moving in and registering. So we'll see what happens. You have that. that and then in addition to that, you have the question of whether national and state-level Democrats will have the ability to come in and spend money in Florida and Hillsborough County to energize their base. Well, you also have, uh, because there's this idea that Democrats can't win countywide in Hillsborough, you, now you have Republicans who are talking about running for countywide offices, all the constitutional offices, right? So uh, that, yes. that would be the tax collector, the clerk of the court, the supervisor of elections, the property appraiser. Um, so what's happening with those races? Well, the Republicans have been talking for several months, and I've been talking to them about how they're going to have good, strong, solid candidates in those races. So far, though, those candidates haven't shown up. Um, you have um, Democrats in the tax collector's office, the clerk of court's office, and the property appraiser's office, who so far are unopposed. The election supervisor has a comparative unknown political newcomer. Kind of a fringe candidate, if you look at what he stands for. Right, running against him. Um, Sheriff Chad Cronister, a Republican, uh, has not a strong Democratic opponent, so that's one office that the Republicans are almost guaranteed to hold on to. And then there's the weird and difficult question about what's going to happen in the state attorney's office with Andrew Warren, uh, the deposed state attorney, and Susie Lopez, the appointee who replaced him. Is he going to run? Is he not going to run? His indecision must be affecting Democrats who must be thinking about running. Absolutely. Uh, that's probably, he probably felt pressure to announce a decision and then announce that he would not run. But then, immediately after that, like two days later, he gets a favorable court decision from the 11th Circuit in his attempt to... <laughs> to sue Ron DeSantis for deposing him. Now he's back open to running again, as I understand it. I haven't talked to him lately, but he says he has yet to make a decision. I think a lot of Democrats think he should run, regardless of whether DeSantis uh, suspends him again. Um, let's go to the phones. We've got a caller. Um, so in our last few minutes here, let's hear from um, Leela and Brandon. Leela, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, I just wanted to uh, thank William March for being there for the Tampa Tribune and now the St. Pete Times or Tampa Times. 
And I really appreciate your columns when I get a chance to read them. Thank you very much. Thank you for following the money on the $500 million that we still don't see for our transportation in Hillsborough County. Thank you um, for all the in, you know good articles that cause a spade a spade when others didn't see the spade. <laughs> and um, I just appreciate your columns. I just want to let you know that um, from Eastern Hillsborough County, Brandon area, devastated with what's happening with their construction and the uh, low-income housing going up everywhere and the roads not keeping up and the deaths of all of our homeless due to the lack of acknowledgement from our county officials that we need a homeless shelter not kicking the can down the road. road. Anyway, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you, Leela. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Well, oh. that's a good way to end the show. That was a good call. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it up. Keep up the good work. I've had my ego boost for the day. <laughs> so what what are you what else are you watching? Tell us what you're watching right now. Well, there's uh, an important countywide commissioner race in Pinellas County. Um, the, Tell us about uh, that. Republicans already have a majority on that board. They could expand it. Um, the uh, oh, let's see what else. Uh, we talked about the Pinellas School Board. Um, and those are going to be my big things. There are, there are challenges, uh, to some Republican legislators in in 2022 in the red wave, two local Republican legislators, Andrew Learned and Janet Cruz, Cruz in the Senate, Learned in the House, both lost their seats. Uh, there are challenges or will be challenges to replace them. Uh, and again, if the red wave does not repeat, maybe there's a chance of some changes there. It'll definitely be an interesting race. You were talking before about whether or not um, the state national, well, the national party would invest in Florida. Is that likely to happen in 2024? I feel that's, like they've given up. That's a wide open question. Oh, I should also have mentioned a pretty important legislative race. In the 2022 red wave, one of the few Democratic wins, one of the few bright spots for them was Lindsey Cross winning a state, a state house seat in Pinellas. She now will have uh, a significant Republican challenger. There is a theory that if the Supreme Court allows the abortion uh, amendment to go on the ballot, that that could drive a lot of Democratic votes, even in the absence of a lot of national money coming in. Do you think that's true? I think it has definitely had that effect in previous elections, some specials, uh, and in other states, I think in 2022. Uh, that seems unlikely. I can't imagine the Supreme Court allowing that on the ballot. But Well, it's, yes. I, it's unlike the marijuana to, ballot, which does seem like that is headed. They, they do seem to have written that in a way that the Supreme Court seems comfortable with. It is hard for me to imagine that our state Supreme Court will allow that on the ballot. Some Democrats hope that if they keep it off the ballot, that will do almost as much to anger the pro-choice women, Democrats, and others uh, who, who they're hoping will be driven to the polls. All right. Well, Wendy, uh, William, William, thanks for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Appreciate all your insights. You can find uh, his uh, column in the Tampa Bay Times online, uh, usually on Fridays or Saturdays, but also in, on Sunday in the, uh, one of the two print editions. Stay tuned for Alternative Radio up next. And that will be followed by It's the Music with Harrison Nash. This is WMNF Tampa.